Romans 13, starting in verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. This morning, um, you get the special privilege of not hearing me preach, but hearing Caleb Wolf preach instead. Uh, you may know, um, if you've been around for a while, uh, that here at Proclaim, we desire to raise up new leaders. And what part of that is raising up men who can preach the word. And so uh, Caleb and I have been working together uh, on this, and he's preached a number of sermons here now at Proclaim, and we continue to uh, give him reps, and he continues to hone those skills for the glory of God, and so we're excited for him to preach again this morning. So I'm going to pray for him, and then uh, we'll hear him preach the word. So let's pray. Lord God, uh, this morning as we come to your word, we pray that you would give us hearts ready to receive what it is that you are wanting to speak to us through it. Lord, I pray that your spirit would work in and through Caleb, as I know it already has, as he has worked diligently in studying and preparing. I pray, God, that your word would convict us where we need to be convicted, that it would encourage us where we need to be encouraged, and that we would uh, be drawn into uh, love for one another as we consider the love that you have for us. I pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm excited to uh, have the opportunity to be here with you guys today discussing the letter of Paul to the Romans and uh, specifically excited about this passage. As we've been working our way through this book, Cody shared with us that it really has two main ideas that the gospel shapes what we believe and that it shapes how we behave. And Paul's been going back and forth kind of between these two um, main ideas throughout the book, starting with more emphasis on what we believe and moving more toward emphasizing how we behave toward the end like we now are. Last week, we discussed a passage emphasizing that one way our behavior um, should be changed by the truth of the gospel is in the way we are subject to the governing authorities in this world. And today's passage really carries on with this theme of how to live practically in light of the gospel. 
for, for us, sometimes it's difficult to see the day-to-day practical implications of the gospel and thus how we interact with others and go about our lives sometimes fails to reflect the beliefs that we hold. The broad implications and the truths themselves are really easy to see and affirm and are quite often very comforting to us. We've been forgiven, we're under grace, we're a part of God's family through Christ. And that's what Paul has focused most of his letter on up to this point. Uh, They're the themes for most of the songs on the Christian radio. They're what stands out to us often when we're having our quiet times. But Paul knows that we're doing ourselves a disservice if we just bask in those truths without applying them to our specific lives. And in today's passage, Paul's going to answer two key questions for us if we desire to really and truly align our behaviors with the gospel that he's presented thus far in Romans. And those two questions are, first, how should we live with others? And second, how should we live before God? See, where those broad truths of the gospel get hard to apply is when we go from speaking in generalities to specifics. When we go from God has made a way for sins to be forgiven and paid for and given us new life to that sin she did or I did being forgiven, that person being shown grace and being made a part of my family of faith, me living out that new life. How does it look for us to live in a world full of sinners and sin and yet live in light of the gospel. At the end of last week's passage, we read, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Paul now goes from speaking specifically on how do we interact with our authorities to how do we interact with our fellow man in general when he continues with this idea of giving what is owed in today's passage. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So how should we live with others? Paul's answer is obviously in love. But that kind of brings up a few more sub-questions for us, three in particular that I'd like to discuss today. First, what does Paul mean that I owe love to others? Second, what does that love look like? And third, who am I supposed to show it to? See, when Paul begins this section, he begins with calling us not to owe anything to anyone. And although I do think there are strong arguments in Scripture for avoiding kinds and amounts of financial debt, in the context of last week's passage, I believe today's is talking more broadly about not withholding from others what is due to them or pay to all what is owed to them. Basically, don't let anyone say that you have withheld what you owe them. Live in a clean conscience and account toward the debts we have. But then how is this debt of love created? And why shouldn't I keep it at a paid-off balance like my taxes or even honor from last week. 
there's something that rubs us wrong about owing a perpetual debt toward others. From the world's perspective, owing somebody love is based on whether they've shown you love. If you love me, then I owe it to love you. And conversely, if you don't love me, then I don't owe you any love. But Jesus says in Matthew 5, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And why would we do this radical thing in loving those who haven't loved us? So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? What, what I found interesting from this section was that the word for O, which is ophilo in the Greek from today's passage, is also used in John 13, where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. He says, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought, or owe, to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. We don't owe a debt of sacrificial love to others because of love they've shown to us. We owe it because Christ has paid our unlimited debt by his love because of the gospel that Paul has shared up to this point in Romans. And you can't ever outlove the cross or pay that debt. This is what I believe John was getting at in 1 John 4 when he writes, we love because he first loved us. So we owe an unpayable debt of love to others because Christ loved us. But what does that love look like? From some of the passages that we just went over, you might start to get this picture of love looking like service or valuing others over yourself. Paul here is going to echo the words of Christ from Matthew 22, where he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And Paul here in Romans 13 says that the commandments are summed up in this word, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So love also practically looks like living with others the way God already told man to live with each other through Moses in the Old Testament. And that shouldn't surprise us because the God of the Old Testament is the God of the new. And his goal for us to live in community with one another rightly hasn't changed. Sorry, lost my spot. We don't get to write off these commandments from the Old Testament and not follow God's instructions because we're no longer under the law. They weren't bad. How could they be? God gave them. As Paul said a few chapters back in Romans 7, 
the very commandment that, I, that promised life to me proved to be death. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. It was our sin that ruined the commandments, our inability to love one another as we should. Before Christ, we weren't only unable to live in right relationship with God, we were unable to live in right relationship with one another. Paul continued just a few verses later, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Because of Christ and what he's done, we can now walk in the spirit and fulfill the law by loving one another. We can now do no wrong to a neighbor as defined by God, which is the heart of all these commandments. So we have discussed now why we should love and what that love looks like. But this passage begins with, owe no one anything except to love, and then follows that up with each other, and then continues by telling us that love does no wrong to a neighbor. This can lead us to wonder, who am I to love, and who is my neighbor? And this echoes the sentiment of the lawyer seeking to justify himself in Luke 10, when Jesus replies with the parable of the Good Samaritan. After sharing that story, which many of you probably know, he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. See, rather than asking if someone should be considered our neighbor based on their race or religious practices, or their physical or social conditions or political party affiliation, we should ask if God has placed us near enough to someone to show them mercy, even if they will not or cannot return that. In fact, the word used in both of these passages for neighbor is placion, which also means near or nearby and has actually been translated that way in other passages. But there is an added emphasis here when Paul writes that we are to love each other as well. In context, in context, that would mean those who call one another believers in the Roman church he's writing to. When I recently read Life Together by Diedrich Bonhoeffer, the way he explained this extra emphasis we have in Christian community to love and be in relationship with one another was very impactful for me. I want to share that with you today. He wrote, what determines our brotherhood is what that man is by reason of Christ. Our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us. This is not true merely at the beginning, as though in the course of time something else were to be added to our community. It remains so for all the future and to all eternity. I have community with others, and I shall continue to have it only through Jesus Christ. The more genuine and deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede. 
the more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. We have one another only through Christ, but through Christ we do have one another wholly for eternity. See, I'm called to be in fellowship with each and every one of you to owe you an unpayable debt of love. Not because you're interested in the same things I am or have the same political beliefs or are funny or in the same stage of life or even because you go to the same local congregation that I do. In life, we don't get to choose our brothers and sisters. Sometimes we wish we could. They are what they are. Not because it's something we gave them, but something that was given to both of us. And we don't get to unchoose to be in community with or love other believers merely because we don't like their personality or because they don't live up to what we think the ideal brother and sister would look like. As if those things have the power to change what God has already said is true about them, that they are our brother or sister in Christ. It was at this point in prepping for this sermon that I realized this question of how we're to live with others could be a message in and of itself. I, I thought that the passage, since it only had two main points, would be pretty simple and uh, break down clearly, and you can see how that went. Um, but we're going to move on from how we should live with others to the just as important, if not more important, question of how do we live before God? And Paul gives us a less clear or direct answer to that question. In fact, he gives us six different calls to action here. Um, and we're going to put those on the screen. They overlap and repeat themselves and build on each other. So rather than going through each one, we're just going to work our way through the passage and through these different calls like Paul does. So Paul starts this section by making sure we realize it's connected to the last one about living with others when he says, besides this, you know. What do we know? The time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Paul is reminding us that each day we wake up, we're a day nearer to our ultimate salvation, a day nearer to the return of Christ. And he calls us out just as he calls out the Roman church, wake up from sleep. This idea reminds me of the story of the tortoise and the hare we all read in elementary, that we knew we were running a race, we knew we needed to get to the end, and yet we took a nap. And this analogy of a race is used elsewhere as well in 1 Corinthians 9, Galatians 5. And Jesus himself gets at this idea of being prepared and remaining ready for what is coming in the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25. Like I shared at the beginning, how we live our lives before God often does not reflect the gospel. If Christ is coming back and each day it's getting closer, and yet each day I'm slipping more and more into sin, showing less and less love to my brothers and sisters, surrendering my opinions and beliefs 
to the word and to the gospel less and less. I'm like a runner who was practicing and practicing until I realized that the race is still far off and started eating junk food on my cheat days and skipping a workout to let myself recover every once in a while until I find myself at a part point where I'm no longer capable of running the race. See, these people were failing to realize that although the finish line is the goal, the race doesn't start when the starting shot rings out. It starts every day leading up to that race, each day, each minute, each practice that the finish line is getting closer. I recently listened to a podcast that spoke about some of the amazing things that God is doing in Iran right now. If you don't know about that, I would highly suggest you guys, when you get home, Googling that, being encouraged by that, adding it to your prayer list. It, it's truly amazing. But the speaker had recently listened to an interview with a church leader from one of those churches, and he was asked what he thought of the Western church, which, if you guys don't know, that's us. And his comment, albeit in a gracious way, was that he felt like the Western church was asleep. This really resonated with me personally. I grew up the child of missionaries overseas and was blessed to experience many different cultures and many different ways that the gathering of the church can look. And when I first moved to America and saw the church here, I have to be honest, I was not impressed. And I was not gracious like that leader was about how I felt and quickly gave up on it. My goal was to get a degree as quickly as I could and then go back overseas where I saw God moving in ways that I didn't see over here. But as I studied the word, and God did a work in me to reveal my pride and his grace toward the believers in this country too. I felt like God was telling me he had not given up on the American church, and I should not either. I began to feel called to love and bless the very members of my family that I sought to run away from. And as I have stayed in this culture of comfort, of minor issues becoming major ones, of disconnection from the world and the church internationally, I've begun to understand how easy it is to fall spiritually asleep here, just like it would have been for those in Rome, the political, economic, cultural, and pleasure-seeking center of the ancient world. In fact, preparing this message was a convicting wake-up call for me to remember that I'm a part of something bigger than myself, that my friends, my preferences, and my next paycheck are not to be the focus of my life. I've been living in ways that don't align with the gospel that I say I believe. And I believe that we all have in some way. And Paul's call to the Roman church is the same call to us, wake So what are we to do? How are we to live once we wake up? How do we get ready? 
Paul continues in our passage, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling or jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Cast off the works of darkness that so easily cling to us. Like those dirty sweats and smelly hoodie, we have to get off the couch, brush off the Cheeto dust, so to speak, get our jogging clothes on, and start running. Although our time here waiting for Christ's return is often spoken of as a race, it's also spoken of as a war. And we need armor for a war, the armor of light, which verse 14 makes clear is Christ and his gospel when it says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians, Paul puts this idea this way. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. We're to put on the armor of light, which is the truth of the gospel we believe, the righteousness of Christ, which is ours in the gospel, the readiness that is given us by that gospel, the faith we have in that gospel, the salvation that is ours through that gospel, and the word of God, which is the good news of the gospel. Just before this section, we would have read that Paul makes clear we are to do this all in Christ's strength, not ours. We're to put on the protection given to us by the gospel truths we've read about thus far in Romans, not just to know, but to stand in, not just to appreciate, but to rely upon day by day. We're also to walk properly as in the daytime. That is when everyone can see you. We're not to live for ourselves when we're alone or we clock out from work and then live for God when we're outside of our front doors. Paul tells us to turn the light on, so to speak. So we can't ignore the truth about how we're living does not align with the truths that we say we believe. We're also to make no provision for the flesh to creep in and lull us back to sleep or sideline us. This may look like giving things up that are not in and of themselves bad for others or innately sinful for you. But if they cause you to sin or become apathetic toward what you know God has called you to, they must go. As we read in Romans 8, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Although it's really easy to look at a passage like today's and feel like it's a lot of do this and do that and not a lot 
about what is true and what has been done. We need to remember that this passage falls in the context of the last 12 chapters of Romans that we've read before it. The reason we can interact with others in this loving way is because the gospel has freed us to and given us the reason to. The only reason I can wake up, put on the armor of God, and fight the battle we're in is because we are armed with the gospel. Let us beware of a gospel that has no impact on our lives, that allows us to fall asleep unchallenged, by the comforts of Rome, because that's not Christ's gospel. We're in a race. Let us run it with endurance. Let us walk in the light and love, like Paul tells us to in today's passage. Let us be known as those who stand rooted in the gospel, who fight our fleshly desires, walking in righteousness and loving like Christ. We've been freed from selfishness and from sin's power. And he's made us brothers and sisters waiting for our heavenly father to return. Please pray with me.